You're listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Well, good morning again, everyone. We come to our last Sunday of Advent, and so therefore closing out our series on the Serenity Prayer. Let's, uh, let's begin our service today praying both stanzas together. Uh, pray with me. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardships as the pathway to peace, Taking as he did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it. Trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will. That I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with him forever in the next. Amen. So, we know that our culture kind of moves at a very hectic pace maybe especially during the times of the holidays. And so having a Christmas um, series, or better put, having an Advent series on the Serenity Prayer was an attempt to kind of slow things down, for us to engage the Christian calendar, to be shaped by an understanding of time that's not kind of conditioned by Black Friday or Super Saturday. And so in week one, Phil spoke to us on the third line of the second stanza of the prayer, which says, accepting hardships as a pathway to peace. Now, that's the secret, I think, of Advent. That instead of asking someone what they want for Christmas, a Christian might say, what are you expecting for Advent? And something that the Advent season does for us, something that the nativity stories in the Gospels do for us, if we're careful and we're paying attention, they tell us that life is sometimes hard. Sometimes it's especially hard. And that on the way to following God, things don't always go as we thought they would go. We, we run into bumps. We run into detours. We have, we have hardships. But it's accepting those hardships as a pathway to peace is what the prayer is about. I don't know if you've seen it, but there's a, a new TV show. It's on Netflix. It's one of those shows that kind of, they release all, the, you know, the whole season, like in a, in a day or whatever, in a moment. Um, you can tell I'm not very technologically savvy. But it's called the, the Kaminsky Method, and it stars Michael Douglas. And he, he's playing the role of this uh, acting coach. And he has his agent, and uh, spoiler alert, just a little bit. His, I know. It's, it's a good show, though. It's, it's, it's worth watching. But his, his agent and his also closest friend, his, uh, his wife is dying of cancer. And in one of the acting um, classes, he's trying to get, this is Michael Douglas's character, he's trying to get his students to kind of get in touch with the depth of their emotions. And so he's telling the story of his friend and his friend's wife, who he was also very, very close to, and, and kind of um, how, how close they were to one another and how much it hurt uh, to lose her. And so what he didn't know was that his friend was actually in the wings and heard. And he kind of made him angry. 
It's like, don't, don't use my tragedy as just a utility for your class. And so he kind of marched out and he kind of exclaimed the difficulty that life deals us sometimes. I'm going to swear just a bit in this, so get ready. This is a quote from the show. You know what it's like to be human, he asked. Is that something you want to know? Fine, I'll tell you. It hurts to be human. It hurts like hell. And all the exploring in the world doesn't make that hurt go away. Because being human and being hurt are the same damn thing. Life is hard. And the holidays... As much as we like to celebrate and put on our, our nice red sweater vests that we only wear, you know, with our green corduroys, you know, <laughs> kind of, this is my Christmas costume, right? And, and, and we're celebrating all the time. The holidays, I think, are the hardest times for those who are struggling, for those who have had bad news, for those who are facing Facing life, you know, the, the first time they've had that holiday since they've lost someone. It's the worst time of year. It's, it's horrible. The, the hopes, the expectations of how we thought things should go just didn't play out. And we find ourselves stuck. This is exactly where I think Israel had found itself just before the birth of Jesus. They were being ruled by a foreign power. They were, most of them were kind of out of money. Uh, poverty was widespread. Um, the hope, the expectation that God would send a deliverer, that God would send a Messiah, was certainly starting to wane. How long, O oh Lord, would we wait? The Holy Family, Mary and Joseph and soon-to-be Jesus, their extended family, their friends, their neighbors... They were all suffering. And so one of the keys to serenity is not to avoid hardship, but rather to seek ways through the hardship to peace. One of my favorite songs is by Garth Brooks. And so you'll forgive me for quoting a little Garth Brooks that I've already said other things. So. <laughs> but my favorite Garth Brooks song is called The Dance. And the, and the first stanza says this. It says, looking back on the memory of the dance we shared beneath the stars above. For a moment, all the world was right. How could I have known that you'd ever say goodbye? And now, I'm glad I didn't know the way it all would end, the way it all would go. I could have missed the pain, but I'd have had to miss the dance. Life is hard. It's possible maybe to miss the pain only if we avoid living. It's better, the cliche says, to have loved and lost than to have never loved at all. There is certain truth to that cliche. This, this is what we're facing. And so in Phil's initial sermon, the introduction to serenity, we heard about accepting uh, hardships as a pathway to peace. And so I just want to highlight that. In week two, uh, we had a guest speaker, Bishop Ed Gunger. And when he was with us, 
He focused on the first line of the, of the stanza of the prayer, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Two things just to recall from that uh, sermon. First, that acceptance is a part of a process. We don't just get to acceptance overnight unless we're faking it, perhaps. But Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, uh, the one who kind of defined those stages of grief, said that, you know, we start with denial, and then we get angry, and then we do some bargaining, and then we go through depression, and only at the end do we end with acceptance. And of course, those, those stages of grief are not an easy process. It doesn't always go through all five. Sometimes you jump ahead, sometimes you repeat. It's a messy process. But praying, God grant me the serenity to accept, is not expecting that overnight our problems are going to go away. In fact, some of our problems don't go away. That's the whole point of the prayer, accepting things I cannot change. So there are things that I wish I could change. I, w I wish I could change that Larry Bowen didn't pass away two weeks ago. I wish I could change that. I'd like to have him back. But when there are things you can't change, it's not that <clears throat> serenity means that we some are now full of joy. It's that God has brought us through that denial, which I think we live in a lot, right? We have our problems, but we imagine that those problems aren't as, as severe as they seem. You know, it's, it happens a lot, actually, when someone passes away. You'll hear someone say, it doesn't feel real. Like, I'm expecting a phone call. I'm expecting to see them walk through the door. The reason you're expecting that is because your psyche is coping so you don't completely fall apart. And your psyche is refusing to accept the reality of their loss. That's what we call denial. And it's actually healthy. It's an important part of the grieving process. It keeps us functional in the worst of it all. But then, of course, we're also filled with anger and depression, and we do bargaining, and, you know, it's part of the process. But this is the prayer, to accept those things we cannot change. The second part, and, this, and Ed picked up on this too, is that the prayer it then comes in Scripture when things like this happen are so true and so honest. Theologically, we call them lament. When I was a kid growing up in a Pentecostal church, we just called it praying through, holding on to the horns of the altar. People would come and they would pray and they would wail, right? And they didn't pretend that things were right when things weren't right. Sometimes we did do that, actually, but only to the point that we were not faithful to our tradition. So again, growing up in the church that I grew up in, we often had testimonies. And we would ask for them. Does anyone have a testimony? It's pretty, pretty uh, risky, I guess, because who's to say what they might say, right? Does anyone have a testimony? Right? And someone would stand up and they'd say, well, the Lord's been good to me. The Lord has saved me and sanctified me and filled me with the Holy Ghost. But pray for Bill, because Bill's still smoking the cigarettes. <laughs> this, is, this is an actual quote. And I didn't even change the names to protect the innocent. <laughs> Right? So what was, what was great about those testimonies is that as we told the stories, they weren't just stories of victory, they were stories of struggle. Eventually, we stopped calling them testimonies. And we started calling them praise reports. 
because our theology was only going to have room for happy talk. And we felt like we had to be happy about every situation. We misread Romans where Paul says God will work all things for the good. And we thought it meant that God said all things were good. All things aren't good. <laughs> right? The oppression of Rome on Israel was not good. The, the poverty that those people struggled through was not good. The fact that they had to wait and hope and pray. You know, God can make good things from bad things. But it doesn't mean that all things are good. In fact, then we shorten those, those terms from praise reports to just a praise. Does anybody have a praise? Does anybody have something good to say about God? And we forgot that people living in a real world had prayers like Mary's. The Holy Family faced this too. There are things that they couldn't change. They couldn't change that they had to pay taxes. Somebody say amen. amen. Right? They couldn't, they couldn't change that they had to relocate in order to pay their taxes. Imagine that. They couldn't change who was in charge of the country, Herod the Great, or, or, or later his son, Archelaus. They couldn't change who was in charge of the people who were in charge of the country, right? Which was Rome. They couldn't change the murder of those boys in Bethlehem. They couldn't change that they would have to live with the stigma of having a baby be conceived before the marriage was finalized. In week three, Phil addressed the second line, the courage to change the things I can. Turns out we can't change much. There's a lot of, there's a lot of power, there's a lot of influence in our lives. We're being conditioned all the time by our families, by our friends, by our work, by our entertainment, by the news, right? And, and we're, the, our, we're conditioned and conditioned and conditioned so that our responses are often even conditioned. But there is something we can change. There's some little bit that we can change, and it starts with us. That's why we mentioned those mirrors earlier, right? And I, I agree, you should pick one up. On one side it says... Uh, uh, grant me the courage to change the things I can. And then you flip it up over, and what do you see? <laughs> you see me, right? Not me. <laughs> Not a picture of me. It's a mirror, so <laughs> you'll see yourselves. And that's where change begins. Now, perhaps that change will have some ripple effects in our families and friends. And if enough do us, there'll be a critical mass, and there'll be a, a ripple reflect in our community. But that's up to what God does, Right? God, grant me the courage to change the things I can. So today, we're going to look at this final line of the prayer, uh, the wisdom to know the difference. And I want us to focus on Mary and her part in the nativity. In the Old Testament, wisdom is often personified as a woman. All right, in Proverbs chapter 8 in particular, that wisdom is this kind of perfect female Wisdom is kind of uh, talked about that way. I believe that Mary personifies or uh, embodies that personification better than anyone. And then, in a very real sense, this embodied wisdom that she represents is containing the very incarnation of divine wisdom as she will later give birth to Jesus. So the angel comes and makes this kind of pronouncement to Mary that, that she's going to um, give birth before she knows her husband, right? Before she has sex with her husband, 
which that would have been hard enough to, to take anyway, and that he was going to be a king and that they should call him Jesus. And this is her response. It's sometimes called the Magnificat because in Latin, Magnificat is the first word of this passage of Scripture. Um, it's in Luke chapter 1. It reads like this. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their, from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Now, I don't know if any of you kind of come from Catholic or Orthodox backgrounds, but if, if you do, uh, Mary kind of plays a more prominent role in the theology and the practice of the church. Kind of historically, kind of coming after the Protestant Reformation, which we, most of us probably find ourselves in, we, we kind of disregarded Mary. Like, we weren't quite sure what to do with her. She's, you know... Um, we, we kind of knew that we didn't necessarily agree with the Catholics, but we weren't quite sure what we actually believed. And we kind of threw the, the mother out with the baby and the bathwater. So, so perhaps you have uh, Catholic friends, and they believe in an immaculate conception, which means that Mary was also born of a virgin. That's, that's part of that belief. That's what that's called. Immaculate conception is not the virgin conception. That's what, that means that Mary was a virgin when Jesus was born. But an immaculate conception is that Anna was, was a virgin when Mary was born. So, you know, I'm not here to debate that. Or her perpetual virginity, that she was a virgin not just when she gave birth, but to the day that she died. Which would beg some questions about Jesus' brothers and sisters. Um, were they all born of the virgin? Or was they, were they Joseph from a former marriage? It's hard to say. But again, I'm not here to, to debate that. And then lastly is this kind of devotion to Mary, right? So if, if that's kind of what Protestants don't believe, what they, what they did, or we did perhaps, if I put myself in that category, was just as wrong because the way in which they perceived Mary they perceived her with this kind of ultimate passivity, like things just happened to her. And this kind of uh, self-sacrifice to the point of detriment and to the point that she didn't have any sense of her own soul care and that she wasn't a kind of a well-developed adult. Or this kind of quietude to the point of almost anonymity, which is hard, hard to imagine, but it's exactly where I think she finds her place in most evangelical churches. But here's, here's something I, I, I want to point out about Mary. Mary consented to the pregnancy. Her so be it or her let it be was like, I'm, I'm good with this. 
When we talk about what she could change and what she couldn't, like the serenity to accept the things I cannot change and the courage to change the things I can, if we put those words on the lips of Mary, what she could change was whether or not she would be pregnant. Like she had the option. Like here comes the angel saying, this is what the Lord is going to do. And Mary says, okay, let's do it. I have to think that if Mary would have said no, God would have said, I'll find someone else. I mean, I can't read this story as though this is some kind of divine sexual aggression. I mean, that doesn't fit who I know God to be. So what she could have changed was she could have opted out what she knew was going to be a horrific experience. Because what she could not change was the way in which she would be seen. She knew that a pregnant teenager, a teenager who was pregnant before she would marry, would be ostracized. I mean, teenagers are pregnant in our culture before they're married. Angela and I know this firsthand, right? Before we were married, she was expecting what came to be Katie. And it was hard. It's not, a, it's not a way I would um, recommend anyone to kind of practice this human life. But it wasn't as hard as it was for Mary. When she said, let it be, she had to know what could happen. Deuteronomy 22, just listen to this one, it's not on the screen. Deuteronomy 22, 23 and 24 says this about girls who get pregnant. If, if there is a young woman a virgin already engaged to be married and a man meets her in town and lies with her a little euphemism there you shall bring them both to the gate of that town and stone them to death the young woman because she didn't cry out for help in the town and the man because he violated his neighbor's wife so you shall purge the evil from their midst so when Mary said let it be she knew that she was up against it. She knew that this was a possibility. She knew that either, either she could get stoned to death, her husband could divorce her, and she'd be out on her own, right, trying to provide for this new baby. And his reputation would be destroyed, right? So it's going gonna, it's gonna to destroy her, it's going to destroy him, and perhaps it could also destroy the baby and the baby's descendants for that matter. Because in the next chapter of Deuteronomy, this is what it says about babies born out of wedlock. This is Deuteronomy 23.2. Those born in an enlisted union shall not be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of their descendants shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. That means her baby was going to get rejected. And, and her baby's Children and their children and their children and their children and their children to 10 generations would be excluded. So when Mary says, let it be, she's having an enormous amount of faith, an enormous amount of trust that somehow, some way, God would make things right, that God would provide. Her trust, her faith is. Enormous. 
a deep and courageous faith. The rest of what she had to say in that prayer, beyond the fact of, okay, I'm in, count me in, (laughs) right, let it be, is the way in which she then talked about what this would mean, like what God was doing in all of this. And she interpreted it in ways that God was finally answering their hopes and prayers, their expectations of, of the coming of God, that God would come and make things right, that he would help out the poor, that he would set right the rich. In the 1980s, the government in Guatemala banned any public reciting of Mary's song because it was deemed politically subversive. So when we, when we hear the Magnificat, my soul doth magnify the Lord, I think we hear something sweet and gentle. You know, kind of like that Mary dressed in Carolina blue. You know what I'm talking about? No? Most of you don't know the UNC Tar Heels? Okay, sorry. A bunch of SEC crowds here. Um, but there's these pictures of Mary that you often see. and She's so meek and so mild. You know, she couldn't hurt a fly. And she's singing in her kind of first soprano voice. My soul doth magnify the Lord. Apparently, the government in Guatemala understood that something else was going on there, something that I think any Jewish person in the first century would have heard when she said these things. Um, Scott McKnight wrote a book called The Real Mary, and in it, he compares the Magnificat, My Soul Doth Magnify the Lord, to the, the anthem and hymn of the 1960s, We Shall Overcome. It's this message that God is coming and God's going to make things right. There's this passage from Isaiah, chapter 11. Again, this isn't on the screen, so just follow along. That talks about what it will be like when the Messiah comes. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. With righteousness he shall judge the poor. And decide the equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with a rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. The wolf shall lie with the lamb. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. See, she, was, she understood what was happening. And she was already starting to proclaim the gospel. That the good news is that God is going to come and make things right. She said it in ways that would have been politically uh, challenging, uh, revolutionary, just like the folks in Guatemala understood. And Jesus then, when he does get born and, and grow up, he preaches this same gospel. You know, good news to, to the mournful, good news for those who hunger and thirst for justice, good news for those... Um, who have been cast out to to the poor. But woe to you, Pharisees, right? Jesus was just like his mama. Right? We don't think of that all the time. But Mary's gospel that she started to proclaim in her song matches the very gospel her son would grow up and preach through the towns and villages of Galilee. And do you not... I wonder that as he was being raised, that Mary was teaching him those things. As he was preaching that gospel, that he also heard his mother's voice reverberating in his ear. 
that this is what the Lord has promised through the prophet Isaiah, that when the Messiah come, he would be full of wisdom, he'd be full of courage, he would bring justice for the poor? I think so. I think he heard just those things. Let me, let me put it in, in this kind of context for a second. Um, I've often heard when, when reading the epistles of Paul that to say that Jesus is Lord is to imply that Caesar is not. But it seems, which I agree with that, but that seems a little removed a bit. I mean, let's, let's reach further back into this narrative and find Mary here and what she says about Jesus and what the world at that time was saying about Caesar Augustus, right? The descendant and heir of Julius Caesar. So here are some things that they would say about Caesar Augustus. About the same time, Mary would sing these things about Jesus. Once Julius Caesar had died, they claimed that he must have been a god, right? Because he kind of made the republic into the empire. as this dictator. Look what he could do. Caesar is God. And so they called Augustus the son of God. They said Augustus was a savior who had come to save Rome. They said that this news about Augustus, the son of God who was a savior, is good news. They called it the gospel. And they said what he will do is he will bring peace to Rome. Pax Romana. All the things that the culture was saying about the Caesar, Mary is saying about Jesus. Between the announcement of the angel and Mary's song, and then what Elizabeth kind of said to Mary when she went to visit him, we get all of these things said about Jesus, that Jesus is the Son of God, that he's going to be a Savior, that this is the good news, and that this will bring peace to the world. So if there's a Caesar, or for that matter, if there's a King Herod below him, and we say this is the birth of the king, then what does that do to this other king, to this other Caesar? At best, it just makes them redundant. But from their perspective, it overthrows them. And that's exactly what I think is happening here. There's a, there's a way to live in this world that doesn't follow the dominant powers of this world, that doesn't reduce every human being to a commodity or a customer or a number on a page, that says that governments have citizens and schools have students and churches have members and families have members. I like that, right? Because the church has members, the family has members, right? That's because we're modeled off the family model. We're not modeled off the business model. You're not my customers, right? Paul would tell his congregation, I don't peddle the gospel. I ain't got nothing to sell to you, right? I'm, I'm, I'm telling you the good news. It's a different type of relationship. It's not reducible to the ways in which the world would shape us as humans. God becomes what we are so that we can become like him. Jesus becomes human so that we can become the children of God. This is the good news of Christmas. This is the, this is the end of Advent. All the expectation, 
full of peace and joy and hope and love is also filled with all the difficulties of life. When you know you're going to be ostracized, when you know you might be at risk, when you know uh, that, that things are going to be hard, what you don't know is how it's all going to work out. All of that gets mixed together. I have, I've, very quickly, three simple things to do kind of as we, as we leave today. So we've been praying for the serenity to accept the things we can't change, the courage to change the things we can, and the wisdom to know the difference. So how do we get that wisdom? Well, there, there are two things that Scripture says over and over and over about how to get wisdom. One of them it literally is just to desire it. The Proverbs say this, the prophets say that as well, that we should desire wisdom. One of the Proverbs says this, Happy are those who find wisdom, those who get understanding. For her income is better than silver, her revenue better than gold. She is more precious, she being wisdom, is more precious than jewels. And nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is at her right hand, and in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are the ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her, those who hold her fast and are called happy. So desire wisdom. Long for it. That's, that's, that's actually the first thing that Scripture says about how to acquire it. The next is prayer. Ask for it. I mean, we've been praying for it the last four weeks, but, but yeah, Solomon prays for wisdom. Um, again and again, uh, people throughout Scripture are seen kind of praying for it. So we can pray for wisdom. But I'm going to offer a third, and so this is not as explicit in Scripture, but I think it's nevertheless true for us today, and that is to follow Mary's example. Because I think Mary did accept the things she couldn't change. Right? And she had courage to try and change the things that she could. Her faithfulness, her fortitude. I'm happy to say this particularly this year. Because in our culture, this has been a, kind of a horrific year, really. I mean, throughout cultures, women often get marginalized. But in a year with Me Too and Time's Up and God forbid Church Too, where we see kind of the marginalization that women have suffered kind of come to the fore, and some of us who perhaps hadn't seen it as well before can see it now. And as the father of six girls... Who would have thought that some teenage girl, right, would say, yes, God, use me and be ready to stand up against Herod and Caesar, ready to proclaim a dangerous message that her son was going to be the king of the world? God, give us all ears to hear the young ladies in our lives, not to push them aside, but to hear their voice, to realize that God is using them and has called them. So if you are a young lady, I want you to hear this, 
that you are made in the image of God. And despite what our culture might say, that maybe you shouldn't make as much as your male counterparts, that's not true. Or that somehow you have to be quiet and, and, and not speak, that's also not true. And that you can look to Mary as an example of one who prophesied the truth about Jesus and shared that good news. And for the rest of us who aren't young girls, God give us ears to hear them. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.